0: wonder if you've you've ever had somebody do to you something that people have done to me from time to time that I I really hate um have you ever had somebody to, when you when you're going through something really hard they try to convince you that it's not as bad as you think it is you ever had that experience um, they'll say well look on the bright side you're not dead you know or <laughs> or hey it could be worse could have scurvy. <laughs> 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 wow. <laughs> That's the first time at Artists we've ever had someone confess to having scurvy. <laughs> That's the one kind of confession we try not to do. But Or even worse, now I know, I know that some of you have had this experience because a lot of you have been in church or, or worse, uh, went to a Christian college. Um, <laughs> They'll spiritualize this advice-giving, right? You've had this experience, too, I'm sure. They'll say, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Or whenever God closes a door, he opens a window, right? Or maybe it's, it's just a blessing in disguise. Here are you heard somebody tell you that the, the terrible thing you're going through is actually a blessing in disguise? I don't, I, maybe I speak for the rest of you. I think I probably do. I don't want my blessings in disguise. <laughs> I would like them to be um, dressed exactly like blessings <laughs> so that they're easy to, to figure out. Well, obviously, this kind of thing makes it far worse you would just you'd rather just go through it and and figure it out on your own than have somebody give you terrible advice or or try to convince you that things aren't actually all all that bad, especially if they're going to do that in god 's name um, so in a little bit i'm actually going to ask you to to decide based on today 's passage if if Jesus himself is doing this, if he is the one actually saying things are ba- aren't bad you, you're you're better off than you think. And if, if he is, then what are, we, what are we going to do with that? Because um, we can't, like, unfriend Jesus, <laughs> right? Um, but we're starting this new series today uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've all heard the phrase, the Sermon on the Mount. We know early on in Jesus' ministry, he uh, had started to collect some followers, and uh, he'd done some healing and some teaching and was connecting with people, and so they were following him from all around the region. And so he went up on a mountain and, and gave this sermon. He, he taught his followers, and it's recorded in um, Matthew 5 through 7. And there's a similar, um, similar thing in, in Luke. Um, and his most famous, famous teachings come from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, pretty much anything that uh, is printed on a precious moments uh, calendar uh, that Jesus said it probably came from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and his, his followers, the, the people who were hearing this teaching, their reaction was complete amazement. Uh, in fact, our, our key verse for this series is the last two verses of chapter 7. After the whole thing has been done, um, Matthew tells us that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And so, that's how the sermon ends, and today we're going to look at how the sermon begins. Um, What what did he start to say that eventually led to to people being completely astounded by the authority that Jesus taught with? And so, I'm going to read you the first 12 verses of uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, and if you'd like to follow along, you're more than welcome to do that. We have Bibles there for you. You may have brought your own as well, which is okay. And... um, by the way, if you if you don't have a Bible and would like one, you're more than welcome to take one of these red Bibles from under the chair. We have um, lots more, and it turns out they're still printing them. So, um, you know, if you don't have one at home, we'd encourage you to take one. You can give one to a friend too, if you'd like. So. This, this part of this, uh, the sermon is called the Beatitudes, and if you have these Bibles and probably most Bibles, it's, it's labeled there, the section header, um, which that's put in by an editor. It's not part of the original text, but um, this is the Beatitudes. Beatitude just means a supreme blessing. And so we're going to look at these, uh, these famous blessings. And one of the things that I'm going to do as I read this is I'm going to reverse the order a little bit. We've all heard the Beatitudes, right? We've all heard at least parts of them. We, couldn't necessarily recite them from memory, but we've all heard the "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth," that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's such a famous passage that I think when more modern translations are made, the translators feel a little bit reluctant to switch the word order around um, in, into a way that would make more sense at the time of the translation. <laughs> So this is this uses the translation from the early 17th century um, into English, the King James Translation, when it made sense to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, rather than saying, The poor in spirit are blessed. Okay, and I think it actually makes a little bit more sense the second way. So that's how I'm going to read it, if it's okay with you. Um, and if it's not, I'm not sure what you're going to do. So, <laughs> uh, But I hope that that will help you connect with it a little bit more easily. When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The meek are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, For they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will receive mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called children of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed. When people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So a few things that we want to say about about this sermon as a whole, uh, and then we'll talk about these specific blessings here. One of the most important things to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that the whole, the whole sermon, not just today's passage, is, is that Jesus is establishing himself as the true uh, teacher and arbiter of the Mosaic law. Now, remember that all of the early followers of Christ were Jews. Um, and as such, they were devoted to the, the law that had been given by the greatest Jewish prophet, who's Moses. And in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus begins interpreting and extending that Mosaic law uh, as it was commonly understood, and he's expanding it and applying it in profound new ways. This is um, something that ultimately led to his uh, execution, um, because those who are in religious power do not prefer to have their teaching extended or expanded or reapplied, and um, that doesn't go over well. That's true today, actually. But despite their uh, objections, Jesus expanded and and elaborated on this Mosaic Law and applied it to his followers in a new way that was fresh and different for them. And in so doing, we who are Christians uh, believe that he also established himself as the true teacher, the true giver of God's law. And actually, if if you look at the... At the setting that this takes place in, you see some interesting parallels between Moses and Jesus and the the giving of the Mosaic Law and Jesus uh, reinterpreting it for his time. Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, to receive the, the law from the Lord. Jesus goes up the mountain to teach. Matthew Henry uh, says this about this. He says, But observe the difference. When the law was given, the Lord came down upon the mountain, and now the Lord went up. Then he spoke in thunder and lightning, now in a still small voice. Then the people were ordered to keep their distance. Remember, in the giving of the law, they were said they had to stay down at the, the base of the mountain. Now they are invited to draw near, a blessed change. So you can almost see, just in the quality of how this is happening, it's almost a, a little bit of a, a metaphor for, for what is happening, for the actual teaching, for the actual expansion of this law. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll need to continue, and hopefully I'll remember to to impress this upon you as we go, that all that we're hearing throughout this Sermon on the Mount is is the law, the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, being reinterpreted, reimagined, and reapplied by Jesus. So let's get to these uh, these blessings. And the thing about the, the Beatitudes with these, there, there are eight blessings here, is that they're they're so rich that really we could do a sermon series just on the Beatitudes and spend a whole half an hour, 40 minutes on each one of them. And I'm sticking it in this kind of in-between size here where I'm not going to elaborate fully on it, but we'll, we'll touch on them a little bit. What I really want to get to is to look at them as a whole and, and think about what they uh, might have to show us in that way. So the first four blessings in uh, Matthew chapter 5, as I see it, describe people who are weak somehow, right? Uh, the poor in spirit is the first one. Um, poor in spirit is not something maybe we think about, but if you imagine the idea of poverty and having no money, Um, which many of you, I think, could probably imagine without too much of a stretch. Uh, At certain times in my life, it's been very easy to imagine what it's like to have no money, because I haven't had any money. Um, And how everything just has to stretch, and you you can't move, you can't do the things that you want to do. Imagine that, and apply that to your spiritual life. If you have poverty of spirit, Jesus is saying, you're blessed. Secondly, he says that those who mourn are blessed. Um, some of us here in, in our congregation are in mourning right now. Uh, you may know that our friend Andrew Bogle lost his dad on Christmas Eve. Um, and, you know, what can you do? <laughs> it, you feel paralyzed and, and powerless and numb Jesus is saying, if you're mourning, you're blessed. Thirdly, the meek. Some of us are meek by nature. We, don't, we, we avoid confrontation or we, we talk in a small voice all the time. Others of us are not meek by nature, but all of us have been in situations where we were forced to be meek. It's another sense of powerlessness, isn't it? When you can't speak up. When you can't stick up for yourself, you feel powerless. And when we don't have control of what's going on around us, we start to be very uncomfortable, right? Jesus is saying, if you're meek, those who are meek are blessed. And then, fourthly, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness... Similar to the poverty one, we might imagine what it feels like. Hungry and thirsting for righteousness, that's one of those biblical phrases that we're just like, okay, whatever. But we know what it feels like to be hungry. Kind of. We know what it feels like when it's been four hours since we ate last time. (laughs) Right? We know what it's like to be thirsty. You ever been on a long trip and you just didn't have any water (laughs) or exercised too long and didn't have anything to drink? that feeling that your body is starting to cannibalize itself a little bit. Apply that to your spiritual life. Those who hunger and thirst. So, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These first four blessings that Jesus is talking about are people who are weak in some way or another. Now, None of them really seem like much of a blessing to me, right? It's a it's the paradox that we see in the beatitudes. Is Jesus is Jesus doing some version of saying, "Well, it's a blessing in disguise." What what does he mean exactly? I think the key to the paradox, at least for this part, is that you're blessed when you're lacking because it's at that point that you are in position for God to be able to fill you. So the next three blessings um, describe people who's, I would describe them as, as people whose hearts are seeking God. And in some ways, that fourth blessing is a transition from the first bit to the second bit because there are people who hunger and thirst, but what are they hungering and thirsting for? It's righteousness. And so their heart is beginning to seek God. And so these, these next three blessings are for the merciful. The merciful are blessed, he says, because they will receive mercy. So the first one applies to how we treat other people. Depending on what your job is or whether you're a parent or any number of other factors, you may or may not have lots of opportunities to be merciful. But sometimes we have those opportunities and it feels better not to be. That's an exercise of our autonomy, not to be merciful to somebody else. It's our own little power, power game. It also says the pure in heart are blessed. Now here's an interesting one. Because this has nothing to do with action, necessarily. It's all about, what? Our motives, right? So, blessed are the people who do the right thing for the right reason. Not necessarily those who do the right thing for the wrong reason, which is, as you know, easy to do sometimes. And the third blessing for people whose hearts are seeking God is for the peacemakers, Blessed are the peacemakers. And that speaks to how we affect the world around us. And we always do. It's more convenient sometimes to imagine that we don't have any effect on on the relationships that occur just outside us. But I think we actually do. And in fact, I think almost all the time we have one choice or the other and the switch is already in one position. You can't go in the middle. You're either helping people make peace with each other or you're or you're not. And as a result, because of the way people are made, they're not going to be at peace with each other. And so you can be a peacemaker or a warmaker. I don't necessarily think that there's a whole lot of space in between. So blessings for people whose hearts are seeking God for the merciful how we treat others. For the pure in heart, what our motives are. And for the peacemakers, how we affect the relationships in the world around us. And the eighth and final blessing is for people who are persecuted. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. Now this one is interesting. It's another one that has a little bit of a transition in it. And it's actually going to transition beyond today's passage. But do you notice the language that changes in verse 11? How does the language there change? Did you notice this when I read it? For the first 10 verses, it's... This type of person is blessed. This type of person is blessed. This type of person is blessed. Seven times. And then the eighth time it says the type of person who's blessed is... Someone who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he, he changes the voice. He changes it from, th- from third person to second person for you grammar nerds out there. He stops talking about them and he says, You are blessed, verse 11, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see how that works? <laughs> Jesus has this habit of, of teaching and teaching and teaching. And he's teaching about some third party, right? And everyone's going, yeah, he's really got them pegged. He has them figured out. Man, I wish I would thought to say that to them. And then all of a sudden he starts saying the word you. You're like, no, Wait. This is not about me. <laughs> but it is. It is. He gets us all quiet and contemplative and, and thinking about this imaginary group of people, these unfortunate sorts who are poor in spirit, you know, mourning their losses. And then suddenly we realize that this is, this is us. And if it's not us now, it's, it's going to be. If we start following him, we should anticipate some trouble, some persecution. By the way, this same little trick works with the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23. Have you noticed this about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, and so on and so forth. And then things start to get bad, and he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Pay attention to the little words in the Bible, because they are the ones that are the most fun. They make the most difference sometimes. Psalm 23 is, is just a much more poetic version of the, the footprints thing, right? You know the footprints thing? Look it up if you don't know. Google the footprint dream. Um, it probably has a precious, precious moments figurine next to it. Um, but that's what Psalm 23 is. When the pastures are green, we talk about God in the the, uh, the third person, right? He. When the valley is dark, suddenly it's the second person. He's one person closer. He's you. We're talking to him directly now, right? So this this transition in the in the at the end of the Beatitudes actually I think it's it's a, a wonderful sermonic technique because Jesus has captivated his audience using language the language of they and then he suddenly turns it on its head and it's the language of you. But it's safe because he's saying you are blessed when you are persecuted for my name's sake. Now when this, this transition is though getting him to the place where he can say you, 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 you a lot and in the, the the coming verses and chapters here of the sermon on the mount there's going to be a lot of you talk that maybe is a little bit less pleasant for his listeners to hear we'll get to some of that in the coming weeks but for now imagine that he's talking about all these blessings in disguise you might call them all these situations that we might be in that are that don't feel like blessings and and suddenly, he's drawing us closer by saying, you are blessed. Now, even after we've looked at these blessings individually, and even after I've tried to connect it with this, this interesting grammatical shift, some of you are probably still hearing these words, and you, you're squinting just a little bit, and you're going, I'm not sure. It still doesn't, still doesn't seem like much of a blessing to be mourning. Or poor in spirit. It seems a little bit pie in the sky by and by, right? Maybe Jesus is just like our roommate in college who's who's telling us we just don't really understand it enough. We don't appreciate what we're actually going through enough to see that it's really God's blessing in our life. And it reminds me of of another passage in the Bible. This one's uh, from First 1 Corinthians, chapter one. You can follow along if you'd like. This passage, by the way, is one of the ones that's probably mo- it. It's, it would might make some like end of the year lists for most abused verse. In Christianity, you know, we're seeing all these lists right now this time of year. Top ten most abused verses from the Bible. This might be on the list. We'll talk about it. But it says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And by the way, I love that phrasing. For us who, to us who are being saved, right? Not to us who were saved and everything was taken care of years ago. But the process is right there. To us who are being saved, (laughs) it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, again, I think sometimes these verses are used in in, our, in debates with people who are skeptics. And we say, well, you know, God's wisdom is foolishness to the wise people in this world, so you're just never going to understand. Or, um, you know, God's too smart for you and... and, and you're using your mind and thinking critically that's just not going to get you anywhere you just have to accept the foolishness of god right i i can't stand that argument that's not i think what these verses are saying at all i think what they actually say is that very simply god does not save us in the way that we might expect him to the whole christian story doesn't make sense at first if you were here on Christmas Eve, one of the services, I talked about this a little bit, and, and Paul seems to be talking about it here in this letter to the Corinthians, that the way God goes about saving his world is not the way we would have written the script probably. It, that's, that's the whole thing of Christmas, right? A baby in, in a, a dirty manger, you know, born into donkey saliva is the savior of the world, right? Really, an executed savior. That's where we're going to go. Like this is not the way we would have done it. And his disciples um, were completely confused by it because they wanted him to come in and overthrow the you know the Roman puppet king Herod and, and usher in a new age of of uh, Jewish theocracy. Right? That's not at all what he was interested in doing, as it turns out. Their their wisdom was. Foolishness. And the way he went about it, coming as a baby and being executed as an adult, dying on a cross, that, was, that didn't make any sense. It and so, the whole Christian story doesn't make sense until you start to think about things a little bit differently. It requires a change in perspective. And we'll also one of the other things we'll talk about as this series goes on is how the uh, even the ethical stuff, the ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's only possible because it's impossible. <laughs> it it only makes sense because it it becomes a complete impossibility to follow the 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 instruction that Jesus is giving for for moral life. So we'll get to that in the coming weeks. For now, it, I just wanted to say it might take a little bit of time. To soak in this message, the, this, this up is down and black is white definition of what it means to be blessed. And that's, I think that's okay. I think the truth is not revealed to us all at once in life. Our, our faith is not a big enough pantry to store all the, the rich food of God's truth at one time. Remember the, the first couple of verses of that first Corinthians passage describes us as, as people who are being saved. Like one bite at a time. One step at a time, one day at a time. One new little revelation at a time. And so if if you're if you're if you're not quite there yet, if you just read these blessings and you think that's It doesn't make any sense. I just encourage you to embrace that paradox a little bit. Cling to the glimmers of understanding that you'll receive and and rejoice whenever you can in the blessings of your own emptiness. I really do think that it's true that, that God is most able to fill you up with himself and with his love when you don't feel completely full of yourself. Pray. Thank you, Lord, for the teachings of Jesus and um, for the times when they challenge us just where we need it. And I pray, God, that we would hear these beatitudes, these supreme blessings as Jesus laid them out and we would be able to inhabit those blessings uh, even if it's just a little bit at a time. Help us to see you present with us in our poverty of spirit and in our mourning and in our meekness and as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us to receive the blessings that come from being people who are merciful and from people whose motives are pure and the blessings of being peacemakers. And finally, God, uh, and maybe most importantly, help us to see and receive the blessing that comes from Uh, persecution, however that may look in our world today, to be blessed even in the darkest and most difficult times of following Jesus. We ask that this would be true uh, now and always. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Each week we respond to hearing the word um, at the Lord's table. And this week I have a, a communion meditation from John Chrysostom, one of the most famous preachers of the early church. And it has to do with the parallel that I in, uh, introduced earlier between Moses and Jesus. Moses as the receiver of the initial law, Jesus as the true interpreter and applier of that law. Um, You may also remember that when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, they had no water, and Moses, uh, at the Lord's instruction, took his staff and struck a rock, and water poured out of it, and they were not thirsty. And Chrysostom says uh, about communion that Moses struck the rock and brought forth streams of water. Christ touches his table, strikes the spiritual rock of the new covenant, and draws forth the living water of the Spirit. This rock is like a fountain in the midst of Christ's table, so that on all sides the flocks may draw near to this living spring and refresh themselves in the water of salvation. Since this fountain, this source of life, this table, surrounds us with untold blessings and fills us with the gifts of the Spirit, let us approach it with sincerity of heart and purity of conscience to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Grace and mercy be yours from the only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him be glory, honor, and power to the Father and the life-giving Spirit, now and always and forever. Amen. So as we continue to worship, you're invited to come and participate in this Uh, ancient Christian ritual. Receive the bread and the cup uh, in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Receive it as food for your souls and do it as an act of unity with each other and with Christians uh, around the world and, and yes, even throughout time. Uh, Continue to worship in song and you can come to the table uh, whenever you're ready.